Symposium with Ash Orlack. Hi guys, welcome back to You Can't Podcast with Kids from the Symposium. Really happy to be joined by Lawrence as usual, but also this time uh, Peter. You'll know Peter from a couple of the finance pods we've done and other pods we've done on, from the Symposium, but uh, really happy for him to make his football debut today. Peter, how are you? Give us a brief intro yeah. about you know where you are with football, who do you support, how do you get into the game? Sure, cheers Ash. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me on. Um, no worries. Where am I with, where am I with football? Uh, started watching... When I was uh, five years old, um, I support Manchester United, uh, even though I'm from the Midlands, which I get a bit of stick for, um, <laughs> as you'd expect. Uh, but yeah, no, happy to happy to come on and, and uh, chat about chat about the game. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what are, what are a couple of your favourite memories, the things that stand out to you as a fan? Um, okay, I think uh, beating Barcelona in the Champions League semi-finals. Um, a couple of good games against City, uh, really with his bicycle kick and um, the 4-3 with Michael Owen in 2009-10, uh, winning the title a few times and then just kind of dwindling in recent history, the uh, the positive memories, I have to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, fair enough, fair enough. I mean, uh, Lawrence, how are you? A fellow United fan, with Pete. I mean, I'm sure those memories stand out to you as well and perhaps induce a sense of, of nostalgia given where your club currently is. No, no, not at all. I feel like there's there's loads of recent great memories. Louis Van Gaal's Red Army, uh, <laughs> Jose Mourinho melting down about Luke Shaw. No, those are great memories. Yeah, that was called good man management, Lawrence. I'm, I'm <laughs> sure understand that as a technique. I mean, come on, you know, Jose Mourinho is an absolute visionary. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, I mean, yeah. I'm after that awkward pause from Lawrence. I think it's just good to jump into. Um, what we're doing in today's pod um so i think it's worth mentioning before we start that we've also released a new music pod uh please do catch that on the usual usual platforms uh, by the instagram page there'll be a link to the spotify and, and then spotify has links to the apple music and google podcasts and anchor platforms where you can also listen to it so i uh, just thought i'd flag that up before i forget um but yeah let's just jump straight into it uh, i think most of this pod will be taken up by a premier league review uh discussion of some of the games and maybe a brief discussion on var uh, because it's not really avoidable uh, but yeah, let's jump straight into it. So, Pete, tell us, um, how would you make of Everton United um, and perhaps Ole's fixture congestion run, which followed? Uh, what do you make of the game itself? How did it play out? I think I think the first twenty minutes, uh, it, it was looking like he was going to lose his job. Um, we <laughs> we didn't play well at all, but uh, there were there were a couple of bright sparks um, towards the end of the first half, and then the second half, you know, we saw it through, but. Even even though the result was a very good one, I I don't think you can say that we played particularly well. So I'm I'm interested to see what happens after the international break. Uh, I hope we can get some kind of consistency moving forward because at the moment the results are just all over the place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean you've had a lot of ups and downs. Um, what do you make of the overall performance holistically? I guess you can look at it positively that you came back from a, from a rough start. Yeah, I guess I guess you can say it's it's positive given you know what happened against Arsenal and uh, Istanbul by six year, but I, I, it's it's still kind of difficult for me to to um, be overall positive about it because you know we we scored three but we could have scored seven and yeah. we were very wasteful in front of goal. I think 
think Everton played very poorly. Um, so I, I think, you know, had we been playing either Everton from a few weeks ago um, or, you know, uh, Liverpool or City, I don't think we would have won the game. Mm, fair enough. I mean, that's a statement about Everton as much as it is about you, I guess, perhaps their early season uh, form might be melting away. Um, what did you make of kind of Ole's selection choices? He received a lot of stick for playing, uh, I think, Pogba on the left of the front three against, I think it was Arsenal. Um, what did you make of any changes he made and how they affected the team? Yeah, I mean, he's sticking strong with Fred and McTominay, um, despite signing van der Beek in, in the summer. And, um, you know, I think Pogba started on the bench as well. And um, I, I have to say, I actually support him in this because I think when Fred and McTominay have played, we've looked more solid. Whereas when he's tried to fit van der Beek and Pogba in, we, we just look very weak at the back. And I'm not sure there's enough advantage moving forward. Um, to justify how how weak we are at defending when we when we don't start Fred or McTominay, so yeah, I I think the the kind of couple of tweaks he made to the starting eleven were were justified, and I guess you could say it played dividends with the result. Yeah, uh, Lawrence, what did you make of it from a Man United perspective? First off, I guess. Um, yeah, so I, first of all, Peter's right. Everton were poor in this game, but it's a continuing theme of the Ole Gunnar Solskjaer era that when his job is under threat. His team puts out a performance that you that you think, okay, maybe he knows what he's doing as United manager. And I think Bruno made the point after the game, like regardless of the um, the pressure that Ole's under, the United always feel like they have a point to prove. Um, and yeah, like only I guess two weeks ago we were praising Ole for his performance against in the Champions League against PSG and and Leipzig. So. And and then now his job is under pressure, so it just it just comes in circles at such a big club. Um, the performance, as Peter said, wasn't great, um, but Ollie really kind of put that down to the fact that we had two free days between the Champions League fixture in Turkey and the Everton match, the early kickoff on Saturday. Um, basically, he he was the most animated I've ever seen him as United manager, just saying that the, the fixture list, which which is a point that many managers have made, yeah, Klopp and, and Guardiola especially. Yeah, Klopp and Guardiola have made that point a lot. Um, and he just said the players were dead on their feet. They were set out to fail. That, that's what he said. Which I don't really buy. I think most teams are in position. And United squad is bigger than most. Mm. Um, but yeah, Peter's right. Fred had a fantastic game for me. He's really proved himself... Um, despite really a rocky start um when he was signed by Mourinho uh yeah it's a it's a very important win against a good Everton side but I mean, it's he, not a recovery yeah what did you make of um Ole's comments about fixture congestion are they merited do you think he's just moaning for the sake of it um or do you think he has any kind of legitimate grievance here no I think I think there's an element of he would have prepared that in, in advance of whatever the result was going to be because it's a nice little fallback if if people, you know, question some of the performances that we've had, but I, I do, I do think there are there are some uh, there is some legitimacy to the concerns, uh, especially with such a long trip to you know like Istanbul, um, and then playing on the the, the the midweek kickoff. But then you can argue that all the big teams have have that. I, I think uh, Spurs had an even worse one where they were playing in the Europa League and then they played the early kickoff. So. Um, maybe there's some argument to be made when comparing to teams like Brighton, but, you know, if you're competing towards the top of the league, everyone's got it. So it's like everyone's worse off. Uh, maybe there's a general point for the, for the good of football and to reduce the number of injuries, you'd uh, you'd make that less congested and just kind of drag it on a bit. But I guess the games have to be played at some point. So. Do you think we should have kept the five subs or do you think that overly benefited the big clubs? 
No, I think we should have. Um, but then you could argue I'm biased because, you know, we are a big club and we've got squad depth. But um, I, I, think, I think the five subs are a good idea. And I, I'm not, I, I've not done the stats on this one, but I, I'm pretty sure that if you check the, the injuries towards the latter end of last season and the beginning of this season, there's a big difference. And you could argue that, that five sub rule might be a, might be a factor. Lawrence, what do you think about five sub rule? Because obviously Klopp uh, brought it up again, um, but then you know people have pushed back and said, "Oh well, you know that." Gary Neville has said, for example, that it's good that you have three subs because at least a, a team lower down in the league can say, "Oh, we've got a chance today." Whereas a big team can kind of just dominate the whole ninety minutes if if they're able to bring on five sets of fresh legs. Um, to be honest, I don't really buy that. I think that a five sub rule, as you said, would benefit the bigger teams who can bring on essentially five world-class players off their bench. Um, I think that the Premier League has a lot to answer for in the fact that you can you, you plainly see in other leagues that when uh, their teams have European fixtures, they adjust the fixture list to accommodate. For example, if you have a Champions League match on Wednesday, your, your league match gets adjusted to Sunday, which to me makes perfect sense, but it's something that the Premier League... For some reason, maybe it's TV scheduling is just really adverse to doing. I don't think the five sub rule is is necessarily really the answer to the problems. And if you use your subs like Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, mate, like you, you're just subbing on players after 75 minutes, it's not really going <laughs> to do much um, to adjust the injuries. But yeah, I, no, fair enough. Um, think of uh, Everton's kind of declining form, Peter, just briefly before we move on to the next game because they're obviously vaunted. They started the season brilliantly. I think three wins out of three. Um, and they seem to have tailed off slightly with a couple of defeats now, and, and they lost the top place in the league. Um, were they just kind of overhyped, or do you think they have a chance at top four? I, I think they possibly do, yeah. Uh, you, you've got to factor in that they missed Dina uh, through suspension, they missed Richarlison, um, and uh, Hamas was out with an injury for a couple of weeks. So maybe they just need to take a couple of weeks to re-gel, so maybe we'll see... Mm you know, the Everton from the beginning of the season after the international break. But I, I think they're a strong team with, with a good squad. So, yeah, I don't see why they couldn't compete for top four. Mm. All right, Lawrence, what did you make of uh, Southampton-Newcastle? Uh, Southampton playing quite well. Yeah, it's it's a really a measure of the competitiveness of the season. It was the eighth match day um, and there were four different leaders of the Premier League throughout the weekend. Liverpool started off on top. And on Friday, Southampton took the lead uh, for the first time in the Premier League with a 2-0 victory over Newcastle. Uh, they played really well in this game. Obviously, Danny Ings is out for six weeks, and I actually said in the previous pub where they're going to find the goals. Well, Che Adams really seems to be stepping up in the Premier League. Theo Walcott was an absolute menace, which I haven't said since, like, 2012. Um, so, yeah, Southampton looked really good. And I'm not going to mention that 9-0. Oh, wait, no, I did mention the 9-0. But um, their, their transformation over the past 12 months has been absolutely fantastic. And uh, really, I don't... With the league being as competitive as it is this season, I think any team... <laughs> you know, I'm looking from first down to probably 15th right now can, can look towards European football. Mm. I mean, yeah, we've seen a lot of changes in uh, the teams leading Premier League. Peter, do you think that's a product of this season being unusually congested due to COVID or is it a genuine sign that, that um, you know, Liverpool City have come back to the pack and actually the top six have come back to the pack? And if, if that is the case, why do you think that is? I think there's been a little bit of decline and you could argue the fatigue um, is setting in for City and Liverpool. 
Um, so that's kind of dragged them back. I think Chelsea have improved. I think United have been all over the place. Um, but I think there's been some genuine improvement in the kind of clubs who would be mid uh, sort of mid table, um, like Southampton. I think Hasan Hotel's really brought some of the squad players uh, together. I think uh, Steve Bruce is doing a decent job. Newcastle. I think Palace are doing quite well, um, and Leicester look uh, as well. So you know, there's, there's just a lot of clubs doing doing fairly well. I'd argue that Wolves are playing as well as they did last season, but compared to some of the other clubs that have come on. They look worse. Yeah, no, I think I think that's actually quite fair. Um, but yeah, I mean, what did you make of what did you make of Arsenal in this game? They they seem to flattered as if you know one week you see them performing really well, look gelled, look solid, and now this seemed like the Arsenal of last season and previous seasons, just looking very shaky. Uh, Arteta actually looking at the numbers doesn't have a massively better record than Unai Emery after the same number of league games, if not actually completely comparable. Um, what do you make of Arteta, Peter? Um, and what do you make of Arsenal? Because they seem to be very up and down. It's very confusing because whenever we play them, they're world class. But uh, <laughs> no, yeah, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, it, it was it was it was a bit upsetting as a United fan to lose to Arsenal and then see them lose three 0 at home to Villa. But um, I, I, I watched the highlights of the game and and they just looked shocking. And, uh, you know, you could argue that uh, Villa have got better and everything else, but, I don't know, Leeds pumped them 4-1. So, I, I don't know. I, I, I think Arteta is, is not the answer for Arsenal long-term. Really? Uh, I, I think he was a cute appointment, Ooh, but okay. I, I don't think he'll last more than a few years. That's really... OK, that's interesting. That's controversial. I, I think everyone is quite high on Arteta, um, perhaps unfairly to the extent that I don't think he's much better or worse than Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, but they're just kind of spoken about in completely different ways. Um, Lawrence, what do you make of what Arteta and there seems to be some calls in, in obviously Arsenal fan circles about Saliba and others, you know, people they could bring into the team. What do you make of all that? Because Arsenal really are quite confusing. Um, okay, I mean, I have to say straight up that I can't really agree with what Peter said regarding Arteta. I think that Arteta of the three managers, the inexperienced managers in for clubs in the top six, the other being Oli and Frank Lampard, he is the the person who, despite his, have, has had the least games, his team looks like it has the most direction in terms of the project that Arteta wants to achieve. Really more than Chelsea? I think so, yeah. I mean, Chelsea have made cute, great signings, but Arsenal, you can, you can definitely see... Um, a, a certain style of play that Arteta wants to persist with, and, and results like that against United, they dominated United. We we can't understate how dominant that performance was. And this Villa result, I would argue, Villa were just absolutely unbelievable on the day. Um, to give them credit, I mean, the second goal. If you're gonna, I think it was the goal of the weekend. If you if you're not gonna watch any other highlights, you need to watch that first Ollie Watkins goal. Mm. Now, it was world class. Um, the Barclays first time volley for for Watkins. Uh, the assist was just superb. And um, yeah, with Barkley and Grealish running the show, Watkins getting the goals, Villa were absolutely fantastic. And these kind of things do happen in the Premier League. These kind of results do. And I don't think that this result should take away the good work that Arteta has done as much as it hurts me to say. Yeah, I mean, Villa, again, a touch, a touch on Villa, Pete, I think they've they're a completely different team this year. We've already seen them hand out Liverpool's worst defeat in like 50, 60 years. And um, now they've, they've pumped Arsenal as well. Um, what's Dean Smith doing there? Because he's, he's managed to turn that team around completely. Grealish looks settled and happy. I mean, who, 
I mean, of course he would be. I mean, his team is, looks like it's challenging for European spots. Do you think they'll fade, or do you think you know this is kind of Martin O'Neill Villa back up in the in the upper top half of the league? Yeah, I I I, I want to see where they where they end up. Maybe Europa League is a possibility. Mm. Champions League, I don't see happening, but. You know, I, I think one of the best things they've done is they've signed players that allow Jack Grealish to, uh, you know, feel confident and comfortable because, you know, last season it was just if you played Aston Villa, all you needed to do was neutralise Jack Grealish and then you've won the game. But, the, you know, they seem to have so many um, uh, you know, positive attacking players now. Mm. Uh, bringing in Barkley was fantastic, I think. And um, uh, yeah, Watkins, I was... You know, skeptical at the time, but he seems to be doing fairly well. Uh, it's it'll, it'll be interesting to see if he can be sort of more consistent in front of goal instead of just scoring a hat trick here and then yeah. nothing um, in other games. But yeah, no, it seems really good. And also, the kind of confidence uh, is there in the squad that wasn't there last season. So players like uh, Douglas Louise and um, Trezeguet are also playing a lot better than than I remember when seeing them last season. Yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe, maybe Grealish, maybe sorry, maybe Barkley's finally, finally realizing that that potential that we all saw at Everton all those years ago. Um, I mean, it remains to be seen, but but he's on, he's playing well so far this year, certainly. Um, you touched on it briefly, though, Peter, about Wolves. What do you make of the Leicester Wolves game? It was quite a competitive game. Yeah, uh, I, I think I think Leicester are an interesting team. Um, they seem to be sort of the squad doesn't seem to change that much. But their results can be fairly inconsistent from season to season, which I, I always think is relatively interesting. But um, no, it was a, it was a great result for Leicester, and you know Vardy's still at it. <laughs> yeah. I don't know when he will eventually drop off. But, yeah, he doesn't seem to be uh, stoppable this season. Mm-mm. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Lawrence, what do you make of Leicester? Vardy obviously playing well. It's a good win against quite a good Wolves side, as you just said as well. Um, what did you make of that game? Well, yeah, as you said, Leicester doing really well to win. Vardy scored a penalty but also missed one. Um, I think the man of the match for Leicester would have been Peter Schmeichel, who made a great save at the end from Ruben Neves to basically save the win. The the real talking point from the game has clearly got to be the handball that led to the first goal. Yeah. Um, the cross came in from, I think, Priet and, um, so, yeah. and Kilman trying to block the cross. He has his, he's running back with his momentum and his hand is across his body. And despite the ball hitting him basically like next to his body, but happening to hit his arm, the referee does give a penalty um, after VAR. So the, the referee gave a corner, but VAR overturned that decision. Mm. And I think this just really amplifies the, the ridiculousness of the handball rule that, you know, what are defenders meant to do in that situation? He had no time to get his hand out of the way, his arm out of the way. Um, and he has to give away a penalty. Literally, um, the, the situations are starting to occur where players, when they get inside the box, are just looking to hit um, the hands of the players. So I think it's just, I don't know, um, VAR, ne- not necessarily the problem here, but the rules certainly seem to be so. Yeah, I mean, ever since, ever since actually against United, PSG against United, when I think it was Kim Pembe gave away that penalty um, where his arms are just, it didn't seem naturally like it would have been a penalty before VAR. I think people have been struggling to to kind of um, find a way of 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 making the hand, of modernising the handball rule. Um, I think we can all agree before we move on to maybe a VAR discussion um, that it's not desirable for these kind of these kind of decisions to be given as penalties because it's really impossible for defenders. I mean, 
they were criticised a couple of years ago for putting their hands behind their backs when crosses came in, but now that seems like that's what you have to do. Um, I personally don't see how, if if the hand is in line, if the arm is in, is, is in line with the silhouette of the body, how you can give that as handball. Um, but but there, we, there we go. I mean, that leads nicely onto the Liverpool City game. Um, Liverpool managed to get ahead with Mo Salah penalty. Um, Gabriel Jesus equalised before De Bruyne actually missed a penalty himself, which would have given City the lead. Um, this penalty was conceded because in a similar incident to the Leicester game, uh, a cross was fired into Joe Gomez and it, it hit him on his arm, which was also pretty much across his body. It was definitely probably within the silhouette of his body and it was you know, moving as your arm naturally does as you're running. And there were, honestly wasn't, wasn't much he could do at all. Um, I mean, Pete, I think we can agree that VAR, VAR needs to be sorted in this area because I don't think either of those are penalties, but the current law is just, it's just not really palatable. Yeah, I think oh, I think this one is specifically the handball rule. It's it's just not what what people think is handball. You know, if you if you describe handball to someone who um, who doesn't watch football, surely the uh, deliberately blocking it is is part of that definition. Yeah, uh, yeah. It, it seems utterly ridiculous that uh, you know, especially that I mean, the Gomez one was bad, but the Kilman one was awful. I thought. It, it, he didn't even know where the ball was when it when it hit his arm. In, mm. And you, you can see that from the ball hits his arm and he's still moving it behind his back. Yeah. I, th- I think that's a ridiculous decision to to give. And yeah, if someone's going to give a handball when it hits their arm and if their arm's not there, it's going to hit their body. Again, I, w- I would argue it's not a handball. And mm. um, people like to blame VAR. I think I think VAR definitely uh, culpable for the, the Bamford goal that was disallowed. But yeah, we'll get on to that. Yeah, but the handballs... Um, I, I just think the rule needs to be relaxed because it's it's ridiculous and it forces the referee's hands as well because yeah. you know they might have seen it and not given it but then when it's reviewed by VAR and they see it on the screen they know they then have to give it because if they don't there's a whole section of fans who are like well the rules are the rules and you have to do this so yeah I think it was I think it's silly yeah I mean Lawrence before we move on to that Bamford. Um... Offside, absolutely stupid offside. What do you make of of the of the VAR rule over uh, the handball rule overall? And obviously, I think we all agree that it should be a deliberate handball. Is there a way that we can legislate that in, or are we just having to stick with this because that's the way technology seems to seems to work? Well, clearly we can't legislate that in. It's the role of fucking IFAB to um, yeah. <laughs> sort out the rules. And and when you get such like, I mean, Gary Lineker is. Uh, for many people in the nation, a voice of reason. And even he is just completely baffled as to the, the decisions we're arriving at, which do have tangible effects on on, on clubs. And, you know, um, VAR has just really sh- shone a, a spotlight into these problems because because they have... And Gomez made a really interesting point after the game. He said, referees, when they go to the VAR monitor, all they see is a slowed-down replay of the incident. They don't see the incident in real time. And when you look at the Gomez handball in real time, it's clear that there's literally nothing he could do to to prevent that ball from hitting his arm. So in what universe should that be a handball? I'd, I'd, I'd like to you know, move to the game because VAR isn't everything, right? If that's okay, Ash. That's Which I think the game itself was enthralling in the first half and sort of uh, it was like a cup tie really with the with the two teams attacking each other, but then kind of... In the second half, they realised, oh, it's it's a league match, and maybe we should settle for a point rather than risk getting nothing out of the game. Um, Ashwin, what did you think of Liverpool's four four two? Because Klopp had a dilemma before the game. Jota's in fantastic form, but he can't exactly drop the front three that's done so well for him over the past few seasons. So he went for a 
well, maybe a 4-2-4, 4-4-2, whatever you call it. And it kind of didn't work with Wijnaldum kind of exposed in that in that midfield too. I mean, in the first half, it seemed to work quite well. We dominated City in the midfield. We Klopp basically said before the game that although on paper it looks like a very attacking lineup, he said that if everyone does their job properly, i.e. Jota and Firmino drop back and drop into the holes a lot, um, it actually is quite a defensive and solid lineup. Um, whether that's true or not is, is, is up to you. But I think this was simultaneously a ballsy and cop-out move for, from Klopp. It was ballsy in the way that he put all four of his front four um, on the pitch at the same time, which on the face of it seems you know, like a very attacking lineup against you know quite a potent City team, even though they were lacking Sergio Aguero. But at the same time, it was a bit of a cop-out. I, I mean, I personally would have liked to have seen the front three of Jota, Salah and Mane um, and I would have liked to see Firmino perhaps drop this game and replaced by Shakiri or someone else in the midfield, because I just think Jota merits that central front three position. Um, and I think it was a bit of a cop-out from Klopp to, to keep Firmino in the team. Um, I don't think it worked as well as it could have in the first half. As you say, Wijnaldum was left exposed slightly, but I think him and Henderson played played quite well, especially Henderson. I think Henderson played well. But but in the second half, I think that the tiredness exposed the how how difficult it was to to run that lineup. And I think looking at the ninety minutes listically, it might have been better to start with Shakiri um, in the midfield with Henderson, Wijnaldum, and then put the the, the front three of from left to right: Mane, Jota, and Salah. Um, but but I think Klopp has a special emotional attachment, as you can understand, to Firmino, and I think it was maybe a slight cop out to not to not drop him. I don't think Firmino is bad at all. I just think he's in a, in a slight rough run of form but but given the quality of Jota's run of form I think he should have had priority in this game what do you think well I think first yeah Liverpool's formation worked fantastically in the first half because you could see that City usually play through their midfield right with Mm -hmm. Rodri and Gundogan sort of supporting De Bruyne but because Liverpool's front two Jota and Firmino were kind of not Jota sorry um Salah right yeah, uh, they were shielding Rodri. They literally couldn't get the centre backs couldn't get the ball into midfield, which basically prevented De Bruyne from having any influence whatsoever. What you saw in the second half was as Liverpool's you know front four tired, City's midfield was able to wrestle control of the game, and I, I think it was just a product of lack of familiarity with the system and fatigue that led to the drop in um, Liverpool's you know performance in the second half. But yeah, Vinaldum. Clearly not used to be playing in a, in a midfield too because um, yeah. he was dragged out wide way too many times. Probably at fault for the for the Jesus goal, in my opinion. He was yes, he was dragged out of position onto the left wing and left a yeah. massive. Um, but I mean, you know, I don't really blame him for his yeah. club the last three four years. He's played in midfield three, and for Holland, he plays in almost a number ten role. So I understand that he was unfamiliar. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I think we should uh, move on then. Pete, what did you make of the um, Palace Leeds game? Um, Basically about the Bamford offside. So, I mean, Leeds lost momentum in the game and they end up losing the game 4-1. Take us through the Bamford incident because I think all football fans can agree it's, it's shocking. Um, he was given offside when your natural eye would tell you that he was actually behind a couple of the Palace defenders. Yeah, I just I just think it's, it's stupid, right? So he's offside because he's pointing where he wants the ball to be played. But what, is he not allowed arms? He's a, he's a striker. Yeah. It's it's ridiculous. And what, so now, now, now strikers have to take into account the length of their arms when they're getting into position. I, I think that gives the defenders a ridiculously unfair advantage. So, no, I, I, I don't think anyone saw that goal and thought it should have been disallowed apart from VAR. <laughs> like, we've seen games, it might be in the Merseyside derby where people ruled offside for being level. Um, but, but this was, to my eye at least, Bamford looked behind. 
like he wasn't even level. He was, it was his arm that was in front. His legs and the rest of his body were actually behind the Palace defenders. Yeah, so, I mean, this even, is... when they, even when they took the line, um, you know, his arm was like a centimetre ahead of, of the defender. Yeah. <laughs> His body was like like half a yard behind. I mean, Lawrence, what did you make of it? It's yeah, just it, shocking, honestly. This comes out of the, the, the new rule that it's actually your, your sleeve that, that dictates the line at which VAR says that you're positioned. So if you point your arm forward, even if you can't score with your arm, that will be an, an, you know, an offside goal. And I was just thinking after the game, you know, it was just completely ridiculous. You know what they say about strikers with, with long arms, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they get offside a lot. Uh, <laughs> it's just ridiculous. Um, but Chris, Crystal Palace played really well in this game. Eze's free kick was absolutely fantastic. And um, another one of those signings from the championship that's actually working out. Uh, so we had, we've had we had Che Adams, uh, we've had Ollie Watkins, and now um, I can't say his first name, but Eze from QPR. Mm-hmm. An absolutely Bamford fantastic well, player. For example, there wasn't a signing. Yeah, yeah. true, true. Um, and yeah, Bamford... Well, yeah, he had another goal disallowed. No, he didn't have another goal disallowed. His goal that he scored, the left-footed volley, was absolutely fantastic. Yeah, uh, it was a it was a very um, it was a very good game. It's a very high-scoring game again, um, and it really just illustrates the, the yeah the nature of this league right now. Yeah, I mean, uh, now we move into the kind of international break. Pete, you looking forward to it? Like everyone loves an international break. I. Watching England recently has been incredibly depressing. So whether whether I actually watch the games will I, I don't know. I'll I'll see which team he puts out, and if there's three people who were playing in the championship last season, I probably won't watch it. Do you love an international break? You know, favorite uh, favorite no. part of the season? No, I ju- just want to mention um, Spurs. They oh, they right. beat West Brom. Harry Kane scored his 150th Premier League goal. Uh, in like the dying minutes he is a fantastic striker and he does play for england so we get to watch him and cheer him on i guess but yeah that's I mean, great. that was like his 200th goal in 300 games or something yet he's got zero team honors bit sad really yeah yeah so right if you changed clubs that would probably be different why didn't he you know you'd love it if he followed the kind of classic Sheringham route and ended up at United Dimitar uh, Berbatov route yeah yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah I mean uh, international break really fun except it's actually not like not at all um, so I'm not looking forward to that at all just but but I mean we won't uh, we'll have a bit of a break in the international break from the pod but we will we will actually introduce uh, a couple of other pods in the break uh, less you know time pressure ones more about wider trends in the game maybe it may be a historical pod maybe pete comes back on and discusses you know his favorite game of all time as some of us did before before the season began but yeah no thank you to both of you that was quite a quick premier league review a whistle top whistle stop tour of the weekend's games uh pete did you enjoy your debut on the pod yeah it was good yeah good oh yeah lawrence nice say, you. Nah, it was shit. i hated <laughs> i hated lawrence i hated ash i was fucking bored the entire time <laughs> <laughs> Why do you have to talk about VAR, man? It's so boring. No. I think Arjun, Arjun boycotted this pod. He said he boycotted it because he was doing tutoring, but I bet he boycotted it because he couldn't take any more VAR chat. And I don't really blame him for it, to be honest, because it's like flogging a dead horse at this point. But yeah, no, thank you to both of you for coming on. Lawrence, cheers. Cheers, man. Pete. Cheers, Ash. Yeah, cheers. All right, see you guys next time on Symposium. We'll be back with a couple of uh, maybe legacy football pods. And yeah, keep up with our new music series. And I'll be back with Pete again for a finance one in the next couple of weeks too. So cheers. See you next time on the symposium. The symposium.
Symposium with Ash Orlack.